So let's have a look at 1 Kings 18. I'm afraid I'm going to have to read quite a bit of the passage. Um, I can't assume that everybody will be on the same page here until we spend a bit of time in it. But uh, Elijah was called by God to, to prophesy and call Israel, the northern kingdom, back to God, who turned away from him following other gods, chiefly the gods of the fertility religions of nearby countries, worshipping Baal and Ashtoreth. Now, Elijah said, I will not bow the knee to Baal, and there were many others who hadn't done it. Elijah thought he was on his own. That was one mistake he made. But he was definitely called by God as a prophet to call the nation back to him. Now, we need a prophet like that today. I'm not suggesting that God will repeat himself and do the same thing, though he may, to raise up a man or a woman who will be a key figurehead in launching a restoration move and a recall of calling Britain back to God. May happen that way, but I also believe whatever happens by the way of individual ministries, God wants to pour out His Spirit uh, in the same way uh, that it was on Elijah upon all of God's people. Now we are encouraged to believe by James in the New Testament that this is a possible thing. We're encouraged to believe it because James says that Elijah was a man of like passions just as we are. He prayed and it didn't rain and he prayed again and it did rain. And then here's the comment. It says, the prayer of a righteous person avails much. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. In other words, we can pray with the same effectiveness as Elijah. Not as it were claiming to be some mighty man or woman of God. Not claiming somehow to be some unique prophet of the Lord. But because the Spirit of God lives in us, anything is possible when we give our lives over to Him. Anyway, the story goes on. There are many miracles. And now finally in chapter 18, Elijah challenges Ahab and the prophets of Baal to a contest. To a spiritual contest. It was a confrontation when the man of God was on the offensive. So often we're on the defensive. We talk about apologetics. And by that we don't mean apologizing for the gospel. But the Greek word apologia means defending the gospel. When the gospel is under attack, we defend it. And we say, no, you've, you've got a wrong understanding. They said God does not exist. We say, yes, it does exist. We say there is evidence for the existence of God. We say, they say Jesus was just an ordinary man. We say, no, he wasn't. He was raised from the dead on the third day. And there is much historical evidence to point in that direction. And in fact, nothing suits the facts more that Jesus was everything he claimed to be other than him being everything that he claimed to be. Anyway, we, we will make a defense. And Peter says, be ready to give a reason of the hope that is in you. But we see here Elijah not just on making a defense uh, as if we're answering the critics, but he is now reserving the right to criticize the critics. This was turning the tables on the devil. 
It seems to me that the people of God were back on the ropes time and time again. The prophets of the Lord were persecuted. Many of them were put to the sword. And a few brave people hid them in caves and places like that. And Elijah had to be so full of the Holy Spirit to appear and disappear one place after the other. Nobody could get him and God protected him. The truth is, there were 7,000 others like him. And today, when we see things getting worse and worse, do not forget one thing. It is a principle of Old Testament and New Testament. God always has a remnant. A people who are ready to follow him and flow him and let flow with him. Let it be us who are also included in that. Now, if that's the case, we're going to have to see the altar of the Lord repaired in our day and generation. Let me keep building a bit of the background till we come to the story here. Now, during this time, it is around 60 years or more since the division of the kingdom AD, uh, sorry, BC 931, when Solomon gave the throne over to Rehoboam and Jeroboam split with Rehoboam. There was a divided kingdom. They established the northern kingdom of, of uh, of, uh, of Israel and, uh, with Samaria being the capital and down south there was Judah with uh, Jerusalem being the capital and, and it, Jerusalem had the benefit of the temple and so up north they said we've got to stop people going down south to the worship at the temple we'll have to make our own provisions here otherwise they won't stay loyal to the northern kingdom it was entirely a political move and Jeroboam established two shrines which was headed up by two golden calves there in Dan and Bethel. And he said, now these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. Come and worship here. And that was an abomination to God. Even though probably it was supposed to represent Yahweh. It was supposed to say, no, no, we're not worshipping false gods, but we want to show you something visible. They have the temple in Jerusalem. We want to show you something visible, so when you come here, you can remember God. But the people of God are very weak, and their eyes are on the material, and they forgot that these were just supposedly representatives of the one and true and the living God, and they turned to be snares and idols. Now, somewhere in all of this, God made a holy concession I don't know when it happened. The Bible is silent about it. But on Mount Carmel, there was an altar which was used to worship God in purity. When you go back to Bible history, you will know that God actually frowned upon such practices. He said, no, don't, don't have private altars in this place and that place. It'll be a snare to you. Come to Jerusalem and there's one altar. We've been talking about it tonight. Bruce, in leading you into the communion, was talking about the Holy of Holies and, and the altar of God and the altar of sacrifice. And that was the one true altar. But God understood that the people in the northern kingdom, some of them had a passion for the true and living God. And there was at least one place where worship was kept pure. And that was on Mount Carmel, one place where prophets would come and people would commune with God. They'd go up that mountain and, and sometimes in secret, sometimes openly, depending on the situation, they are worshipping the one and the true and the living God. However, at some point somewhere, that altar fell into disuse. Let me challenge you today and ask you, is the altar of the Lord in full repair and functioning well in your life? 
What is the altar of the Lord? It is that place where we preserve our relationship with God. Where we say, God, you are the most important thing to me. And whatever else happens today, I will bow the knee before no man, no woman, no demon, no devil. And I will bow the knee before the living God and say, God, you are my God and I serve you. I surrender to you. This kind of language is well used in the New Testament. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And the altar of the Lord is that place of consecration. It's not the place of religiosity. And quite frankly, I don't think it happens very much on a Sunday. On a Sunday, we are here to celebrate all that's been happening in our hearts in the week, and and we can refresh that. But the real test of the altar is not the Sunday service where you sit and everything's laid on. And there it is. I mean, I'm listening upstairs, resting and saying, okay, Bruce, you carry on with the whole service. I want to come down fully charged just to preach tonight. And he's doing his thing, and it's going well. And the music and the harmonies are so beautiful. I thought, it is easy to worship God. You don't need to build an altar today in this house. The altar is already here. The prayer that has gone into this service, the daily prayer, the new prayer diaries coming up, the daily Bible reading, the Wednesday evening prayer times, the daily prayers and the prayers happening in the cells. All of this is building up and the altar is repaired. The altar is here and all you have to do is come and be at least a little bit sensitive to God and you are going to be blessed and you are going to be filled without a lot of effort. But the real altar of the Lord is what happens at the end of the service what happens tomorrow, what happens in the week when you go out into the rough and tumble of the real world out there and it'll be you when no eyes are on you, no Christian eyes are on you, nobody's looking you to see if you say amen in the right place or hallelujah in the right place. (laughs) You're so cautious, you're wise. And uh, it's it's in that place, the secret place of God's eyes are. Now, I, I, I want to put it to you today that the altar of the Lord needs to be repaired in our lives. I'm not accusing you. I'm not saying that you are somewhere where you shouldn't be. I'm not saying that. But I I know instinctively that in our hearts and lives and, and generally across the churches, we need a restoration of the consecration that comes when the altar of God is repaired. Okay, that's, that's, that's the introduction to introduction. The, the trouble is when you're flowing like this, uh, you've you, you got to watch the time. So let's have a look at 1 Kings 18 verse 20. And this is the confrontation and we'll read a little bit of it. And the whole point about this is that we're going to, as it were, repair the altar of the Lord in our hearts and, and the fire of God is going to hit our lives today. I said, the fire of God is going to hit our lives today. Okay, let's go. Verse 20. So Ahab, he's the king, sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. What prophets are these? These are the false prophets. They were helped and, and, and taken care of. They were nurtured by the king. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered not a word. They were wise. You know, I'm speaking to a lot of non-Christians and listening to them and hearing what they have to say. And one thing I'm struck by most of the non-Christians that I meet is how totally consistent they are with what they believe. In other words, most of them 
they believe that if there is a God, he's not really interested in how they live and they really believe that they have the right to live their life their own way and they really believe they have the right to do that and that's one of the reasons they resist surrendering to the belief in God and Jesus because they know it is going to interfere with their lifestyle and going to interfere with their personal choices. So they believe they have a right to live as they choose to live and it's going to be okay. And my, 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 aren't they consistent with that? Now, we come to believers, and believers are not quite as consistent. We say we have no right to go our own way. We say our choice must always be exercised to follow Jesus, to worship him and him alone. And yet, we're not always consistent, and there are times when we falter between two opinions. One of the great ministries of a prophet is to be able to stand up and say, Wake up, people of God! Can't you see what you're doing? I'm tearing the scales from your eyes. I'm just uh, taking the lid off everything. Can't you see that what you're doing is inconsistent? Now, you need to make up your mind. If Jesus is Lord, then serve Him. But if there are other values which are more important and, and stronger and, 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 and require your devotion over and above Jesus, and if that's the truth, if that is the reality, and if that's what you, what you choose to believe, then go and do it. But for goodness sake, stop being stuck between one and the other. In other words, be consistent. They didn't answer anything. Then Elijah says this, verse 22, I alone am left as a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. And there are times when we think we are the only ones who see things correctly. God help us when we think that Kensington Temple is the only way of doing church. God help us if we think that the Elam Pentecostal Church is the only thing that God wants to see happen in Britain. That's our, that's our denomination. God is bigger than all these things and God help us if we think we are the ones and truth will die with us. No, we have to be humble and realize that God has many, many people at work in this city who love Jesus and are calling together and grouping together for the same thing, to see the altar of the Lord repaired and to see the fire of God fall. Anyway, the story goes... He says, I want you false prophets, you prophets of Baal, give us two bulls, let them choose one bull, cut into pieces, lay it on wood, put no fire under it, and I'll prepare the other bull, lay it on the wood and put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I'll call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. So it's a challenge. You prepare a sacrifice, who prepare a sacrifice, no matches, no kerosene, no firelight is under. It's got to come from heaven. And the God who answers by fire, that will be very clearly demonstrated to be the one and the true and the living God. Well, they did that. And then he said, you go first. And then from morning till evening, they're weeping and wailing and cutting themselves and bashing themselves and gashing themselves and behaving like pagans. Do not let the romanticization that is being put forward by the media of pagan religion fool you. Pagan religion is empty. Cutting and gushing themselves. Blood pouring. Why don't they understand the blood of Jesus has already been shed? 
And then Elijah begins to mock them. This is something I don't want you to do at home, people. And it says here, verse 27, And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry louder! For he is a God! Either he's meditating, or he is busy, or he's on a journey, or he's relieving himself behind a bush. That's hidden in the language here. Perhaps he's sleeping and must be awaked. So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom with knives and lances, till blood gushed out on them. When midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Why? Because there was no one there. The gods of the nations are no gods, non-existent gods. There is only one true and living God. That's the God of Israel. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God of the Old Testament. That's the God of the New Testament. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God. One God. And so Elijah said, you've had your turn. It's our turn now. Wouldn't it be amazing if God gave us it's an our turn now moment? It seems that for generations, it's been other people's turn. It's been the turn of the pagans. It's been the turn of the false religionists. It's been the turn of the people who pollute the minds of our young people. It's the turn of the people with their liberalism and their false philosophies. It's the turn of the other people. And what happens if God says, enough's enough. Now the church is going to rise up. It's our turn now. When we will step up to, the, up to the plate and say, we will now challenge you. The God who answers by fire, let him be God. The time will come when God will answer by fire. And I want to be there. So... The first thing he does then, verse 30, he says to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. How precious that was. He took 12 stones, built it around and dug a trench and, and repaired the altar of the Lord. If we want God to answer by fire, we've got to repair the altar of the Lord. The place of consecration, the place of devotion, the place of pure worship, and the place where we say there is no God but Jesus. Jesus as the Son of God. There is no other beside Him. Our wonderful God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one being. We worship Him. And because we worship Him, it's exclusive. We love Him with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Now, this is not about perfection. As long as there is a need for an altar on the earth, there is no perfection. The beautiful thing about the altar of God is that God has established it and encourages us to repair it. And, and how can we repair the altar of the Lord in our life? That pure devotion, that non-religious longing for God, it's not about human self-effort. I want you to think for yourself on this one. 
Some top theologians disagree agree with me, and I'm still working with them. But the point is, here's what I think. I think it is possible to do the right thing for the wrong reason. I think it is possible to try to live for God doing the right thing in your own strength. I think that's possible. I think it is possible to strive in the presence of God rather than allowing the Holy Spirit to take over. So I'm not talking about the dogged, rigid, religious discipline of going through all the things that you know you are supposed to do. Yes, discipline is important. You don't just wake up in the morning, do I feel like praying? Well, mostly you won't listen to your birthday, you just read a 500-pound check. Then you might feel like praying, at least praising. It's not about just doing what you feel like doing. There's got to be a kind of discipline. There's got to be some structure in your life. Of course there is. But it's not about screwing up all your own energy to try and do something that only God can enable you to do. We have to flow with the grace of God and let our lives be taken over by the Holy Spirit because it is only the Holy Spirit that can move us in the direction of God. So he prepares the altar and repairs it all, and now there's a moment of consecration. And you know the story. He says, it's not enough that there's no matches here, no kerosene. I want everybody to know that what is about to happen is from God. I remember a long, long time ago when I was first saved, one of my best friends said to me, you know, you say you're a Christian, you say God is real, I don't believe you, but if you ran up the wall and hung from the ceiling by your feet without the aid of prop or anything, then I'd believe. And you know, for a moment I thought, I'll give it a go. I'll give it a go. Then I realized, I said, you know what, if I did that, you'd just say you've got sticky shoes. He said, yes, I wouldn't even believe if you did that. So, you know, this is, this is not about doing something that people can say, well, you of course it would happen that way. We don't have to give God a helping hand. When the ark stumbles, we, we don't hold out our hand to, 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 to steady it. God is very capable of looking after himself. And he doesn't need any help from us to make him look good. Actually, whenever we're trying to make God look good, it's usually we who are trying to make ourselves look good. Elijah was not putting on a show. This was no stage act. This was no conjuring trick. This was no way of somehow showing people through a showy demonstration that we can do a slick operation. He said, I want everybody to know that if fire comes and burns this up, it is God. There's no tricks here. And so they drenched the altar with water several times until it was absolutely dripping wet. And then Elijah stepped back and said, now, Lord, answer by fire. Show them that you are Lord and that everything that has happened I've done because you have told me to do so. The fire fell, licked up all the water, burnt the sacrifice. Everybody fell on their faces and shouted, The Lord, He is God! And then comes the judgment. Elijah then goes and kills all of the prophets of Baal. And you say, is that fair? Yes. Don't forget, they were living in a theocracy. It was a capital offense to worship other gods. We don't live in that theocracy today 
Jesus has changed all that and says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. So church and state are separated. But this was a situation of a theocracy, and there are those who want to, pu- who want to push theocracy today. Radical Islam, ISIS, teach a theocracy. That's why there's capital punishment for sins against their way of life. And you might say, well, ISIS is pushing things to some kind of radical extreme, but no, they're not really. It's just the logical understanding of what it means to live under a theocracy. And there is no branch of Islam other than uh, a kind of uh, liberal Islam, and maybe people are trying to modernize it, but that is essential Islam where the laws of Allah become the laws of the land, and we are in big trouble if we allow that to continue. We must stand up and say, that God is a false God. Jesus came that we could be delivered from all of that. And so, the fire falls, and they declare that the Lord is the one, and the true, and the living God. And then, the rains came, meaning that God was now ready to bless the land, when the hearts of God's people had been restored and returned to him.